Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. Hello, welcome to everyone participating in today's webinar update on DCAA current initiatives. My name is Evgeny Sahenko. I'm a senior manager in our outsourced accounting department at GRF. And today we are joined by Paul Calabrese, who is a GovCon expert and a principal in our outsourced accounting department at GRF. And also Darren, who is a manager in the IT and risk advisory departments. And the last part of today's webinar, we will hear from Darren, who will discuss some of the solutions for a government contractor cybersecurity requirements. With that, once again, we're GRF CPAs and advisors based out of Bethesda, Maryland, serving clients primarily in the DMV area, but also nationally and internationally. Our client and our firm serves a wide range of clients covering nonprofit, for-profit, publicly traded companies, schools, government contractors, others as well. However, our particular niche is within the non-for-profit and INGO space. We've been in operation for over 40 years now, starting as your traditional accounting firm providing audit and tax services, as well as outsourced accounting and bookkeeping services. I'd like to also point out that in addition to the wide array of services you see on this slide here, we also provide government contract consulting services. With that, and speaking of government contract consulting services, I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to Paul. Thank you, Yev. Good morning, everyone. Well, today we're gonna to talk about uh, the DCA current initiatives. When DCA goes um, and presents around the Beltway, around Washington, D.C., about once a year, they talk about what are their current updates. This is based on a prior presentation that was given by this gentleman, Bradley Wolf, and that's why he gets the credit for it. And we took snippets from that presentation and then we'll go into some other things that they probably didn't go into. And also there'll be things that they may have talked about, just general things about how DCA operates, which I'm assuming our audience knows. And I, you know, so we won't go into that. We're just gonna go in to the critical issues because most, I'm sure the people on here want to know what is, what is DCA currently up to? Um, so let's go to the next slide. And before I do that, some of you might ask, why is DCAA, Defense Contract Audit Agency, in general so important? And they are an agency that influences other government audit agencies. They audit primarily the Department of Defense, contractors, and, and sometimes even grantees and so forth. But um, other agencies often use and refer to their materials. You'll probably see at some point in my presentation, I may refer to their website, www.dca.mil. And on it, there are a lot of very good resources so that you can understand if DCA is doing it 
or another agency, uh, another agency, for example, that might do your incurred costs. Of course, if you're with USAID, they often refer a lot back to USAID. So it is important that um, we understand that, you know, DCA is an influencer. They have a lot of great stuff on their website. And that's just something to know. Um, also, there's a group that does D, that oversees DOT, Department of Transportation Audits, and it's called AASHTO. And you may hear about FAR Part 31 audits. Often those uh, guidebook refers back to DCA and their DCA contract audit manual. So they, they have pretty prolific influence uh, in the government contractor world. So DCA's priorities, as you can see on this slide, is the number one is incurred cost audits as they settle indirect costs and uh, cumulative costs uh, on a contract over years. And they have these demand audits primarily as they call them forward pricing. That's your proposal audits, review of your provisional billing rates if you're small. And if you're large, your, your projected indirect rates, maybe even labor rates. Um, they do do business systems audits. Those are DFAR. Uh, defense FAR type uh, audits or reviews that are required, which we'll talk about briefly. And they also talk about truth in negotiations. Uh, another word is defective pricing. And of course, they're always doing a real-time audits. The most common is a floor check. They do other things related to the cost accounting standards that and other items, but we're not going to focus on that today. So let's go to the next slide. So when they do um, a lot of these proposal audits or rate or indirect rate audits, you can see that um, the last time they kept track of it, it took them still 81 days. I would say to you that if I'm a government contractor and in my prior life, I did work for so many years for three different government contractors. When DCA shows up at the door and they're knocking to, to do a proposal, that's a very good time. That's a very good indicator, maybe perhaps your, your proposal has been already accepted technically, and now they're going through the administrative and they're asking DCA to do a proposal review. And, and that is one uh, that you should be aware of and should be ready for. And I would say to you um, very uh, clearly, even though they don't mention it in this update of their current initiatives, but in prior ones before COVID, they used to say the one thing they saw from government contractors was that they were often not prepared with the documentation for a proposal review. And so, you know, you should have some kind of backup of all the documents that support your cost, specifically your direct labor, your bill of material. If you have a bill of material or direct uh, costs in terms of materials, other direct costs. And hopefully, you know, it, you know, your indirect rates have been reviewed by DCA, but if not, and you're smaller, then you should have some basis for how you came up with your projections, because that is going to be uh, very, very important. Okay, yeah. Next slide. Excellent. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, so with that, we're going to get to our first polling question. And the, cool, and the question is, where does it require government contractors to track their time on a timesheet? First answer choice is FAR 31.2 cost principles. Second is the FAR definitions. Third is the ICE model. Fourth answer choice is 2 CFR 200.430I, compensation for personal services. And finally, the last choice is there is no regulation. 
So please take a moment now to answer. All right. Well, there's only one person that got the answer right, and that is there is no regulation. So with that, we'll move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about that. It is interestingly that it's more of an industry practice. It's obviously mandatory that you do track your time, but unfortunately, not like the uniform guidance for grants, they're not specific, but it is still a requirement, but there's no reg. Okay. All righty. Let's see if we can get rid of that poll still up there. We just, there we go. Okay, so looking at um, incur cost audits as being a requirement, the DCA, when you submit um, an incur cost audit, they have a template called the ICE submission incur cost electronic. You can get it from the website. If you're required to do it because you have a cost plus fixed fee or award fee or incentive fee or something like that, then you have 60 days, um, DCA has 60 days to review it to make sure um, that uh, it's adequate. So DCA kind of refined this process. They want to kind of review what you submit. Hopefully you're using their document. It is true that if you have a, a more sophisticated system, you may have a legacy submission and DCA may even be on site if you're real large. And so um, they understand that's a little bit different. But for most smaller con government contractors, you know, it is the use of that. And um, you may even have uh, grants on there, cost reimbursable grants too. Even though you're a government contractor, you say we'll review all of that. Um, but what you see there is that they have to respond 60 days and say, hey, what you've given us is either adequate or not. And we'll give you a, a, a list of the items that aren't. And uh, then you just work through that and get that done. Once they have an adequate submission, then they have a year to actually perform the audit, decide to do the audit or not. Um, many of these audits now are done by independent private auditors, which we'll talk about later called IPAs. You can see the web link below and on their website, almost at that same location, you can download the DCA ICE uh, Excel file, as well as like here's a checklist. This on the right, you can see just a snippet of the checklist and some of the things the auditors will look for in making sure that it's adequate and that they have other audit programs should they do an audit. Okay, next slide. Okay, good. So they now use um, independent public accountants or accounting firms to do some of DCA's backlog. If you're a real large government contractor, I would be surprised. I would assume they would have their own auditors, DCA's auditors there. However, they now are hiring, that's basically it, an independent public accounting, a certified public accounting firm to help them reduce their backlog of incur cost audits. So you should be aware of that. The first agency that started using that was USAID back around 2014, 15 or something. And many of those um, IPAs that did them, they weren't quite as experienced. And I say that with a big smile, but now they're, they're very experienced with USAID and of course DCAA. Uh, we have government contractors, so we've seen them come into our clients and um, they're pretty much with it. They almost perform in many ways 
and look and sound like DCA, except that they're a private firm. So they're much, much better at it now, which is good. But you have to understand an independent public accountant firm is on a contract. And that's very, very important for you to understand. Why is that important for you to understand? Because at some point when they do their entrance conference, they'll probably tell you, let's say they come in in like now, October, they'll probably say mid-February, we should be done completely. We got to submit our final report or draft report or whatever. So you have to have a sense that you must cooperate with them and provide the documentation that they need. If you don't, what I've seen happen in the past, which gets kind of into an ugly situation, is that they just, they submit what they call unresolved or unsupported costs. And I saw one entity where there were issues on both sides, but they had disallowed, you know, most of their costs, you know, like 1.1 million. And we had to go into audit resolution later and resolve those issues. So they have a contract. They have to finish. Whereas DCA, you know, could take their time and, well, not take their time, but certainly take longer. One of the things they really like about this is that it forces the government, uh, it forces the government contractor to respond timely uh, to these IPAs. Um, DCA really gets most of its question costs and it's probably its annual report to Congress from, from proposal audits, you know, uh, for pricing rates, defective pricings rather than from incurred cost audits because incurred cost audits for them to get question costs it has to be sustained so you know the government contractor has a right to respond to any disallowed costs as to whether they agree or disagree and it could if there's disagreements it can go to the aco the administrative contracting officer for final resolution so there's it can be a pretty heated process between the two in working out what's allowable, what's not allowable, what's questioned or not questioned. And and so, um, you know, um, proposal audits, if you don't know, you don't get to see the audit or for pricing sometimes. They just, they do it, they send it to the command or the defense, the agency that's requested the proposal audit. And you, you should ask for it, but you can't get it directly from DCA. You'll have to ask under Freedom of Information Act directly from the procuring office once the proposal and everything has been resolved and the contract has been awarded. You should request it because it'll give you insight into how they're looking at your system, but they can question costs right and left and you'll never know it or see it unless you get the audit report. And so the last bullet basically it's talking about um, in years past, DCA had an internal kind of struggle. Should we try to preserve more headcount, you know, more people in our firm, our entity, our agency, or should we uh, basically give that up and, and have these, these uh, outside auditors? And, and at first, maybe three or four years ago, there was a, you know, a little struggle there. But now I think they've basically accepted the fact that independent public accounting firms can do a fairly good job and it helps them manage the incur cost backlog. Okay, next slide. So I just wanted to share with you two slides, this one and the next. And for um, many entities that are either under 5 million or between 5 million and 100 million, which I'll show in a minute. But on this slide, um, basically the question is, you've submitted your incur cost submission, that big uh, mammoth, just large uh, workbook of could be up to 32 or more tabs, you know, that gives goes back to tab A, which is your, your summary of your indirect rates that you're claiming. 
and you submit it and they've determined it's adequate. Now the question is, because DCA still cannot do all audits. Now, maybe they're doing more audits with the IPAs with their funds, but they have what they call a sampling pool. And the idea is you want to be in that sampling pool, meaning that if you're less than 5 million, they throw you into that sampling pool, provided we'll see below some exceptions to that. So they'll throw you in a sampling pool and then they do a random sample to see who they'll test each year. So that's a good thing. That may mean if you're not audited, they just will simply, once your um, incur cost submission is determined to be adequate, they submit you an indirect rate letter, an indirect rate letter that basically says these are your final rates and they're good for that year and there's no audit. So that's a wonderful thing if you get put in it. However, if you've had significant question costs um, in the last completed incurred cost period, that they may then just audit you anyway, or if there's some departmental concerns. However, it's interesting that that um, the last item under number one, but basically what they're saying is there's got to be a good reason for them to do somebody under five million. Next slide. This is between five million and a hundred million, less than a hundred million. You're over a hundred million. There are special things. They may audit you cyclically. There aren't. I, I know there's one entity on here that's super large, but um, for most of you, you're probably under a hundred million. And ADV, audited dollar volume, means what you're auditing means all cost type contracts, cost plus fixed fee, cost plus reward fee, incentive fee. Um, there isn't probably couldn't even be this weird thing called a fixed price redetermination, which is very rare, but it gets into some cost issues. Could be cost type line items on a hybrid contract that's both fixed and cost. As well as on the TNM, it could be the ODCs and materials plus the GNA because that part's flexibly priced. Less any cost type subcontractors where it's large enough that they are going to do what they call assist audit and have someone else include that in their incurred cost audit and give the results to DCA. But that's what it means. So you could have start with 10 million, but then, you know, the cost type contract you have maybe is is uh, 8 million, and then you may have assist audits of large subs and you get down to 4 million, then you're under 5 million. So you can see kind of how it works. And to be eligible for the sampling pool, again, the same first two bullets, you know, no significant question cost, no departmental issues from anybody. And basically the last bullet saying, you have an adequate accounting system. Okay, next slide. Yeah. Excellent, yep, you got it, thanks Paul. So we're now on our second polling question, and our question is, what DFAR business system does DCAA not perform? Is it A, estimating system, B, contract or purchasing system review, C, material management and accounting system, D, accounting administration, or E, earned value management system? So again, please take a moment to answer. All right, I think we're done. The one audit they don't do is a contractor purchasing system review. So two of 18 got it right. All right, so let's get rid of the poll and move on to the next slide. Okay. So why did I bring up contractor business system audits? Because partially that is what DCA does. They primarily do an accounting system audit. 
under the DFARS, which is very similar to, if you ever heard of an SF 1408 review, a pre-award uh, accounting system, that one's a little bit of a, of a system review light, meaning um, they're looking at policies, procedures, pulling reports, making sure you can do what everyone, uh, you know, the basics of, of a cost accounting, whereas maybe in the DFAR accounting system administration, one which they can also do, they're going to do some testing and, and dig in a little bit more into your system. However, estimating and material management accounting systems are very, very large for very, very large government contractors. So um, it's just something you probably, unless you're very, very large, um, won't see. The reason why I bring up the CPSR is, is because, as we'll talk about in the next slide, but not go to it yet, is that um, there are solicitations out where people can get credit. But I just want to focus on you, to you that how difficult it is to be ready for a CPSR. And if you're a small firm, think about it, that even under the FAR, though the FAR has a requirement for this, and so does the DFAR. The DFAR is more involved and specific and has 24 criteria, whereas the FAR, I don't think it has as much, but it says the basic requirement is you got to have 25 million in sales, excluding commercial items. So you can see it's still meant for a large entity. If you have 25 million you know, uh, in, in sales relating to, to contracts that could be audited for a contractor purchasing system review, you're gonna be a lot larger. You'll be 50 million, 100 million and so forth. And the reason why um, the procuring officers, PCOs like this, they don't have to pro, uh, approve subcontractors but basically it's a 24, the DFAR version is a 24 criteria and they're looking for a hundred page policy. It's gigantic and involved. Okay, next slide. And you can open up all the bullocks. I appreciate that. So basically an entity that's smaller, I've seen entities, believe it or not, just one or two million come to our firm and say, hey, you know, there was some kind of like seaport. I know that's always out there every year. And the latest version says that if you have, you know, passed or had a, a contractor purchasing system review, a CPSR, that'll give you added points, I believe, under Section M as in Mary of a solicitation if contracts are still set up that way under DOD. And uh, but there's a lot of things you need to consider. Um, and the first thing is, do you have the requisite, the third bullet? Do you have contract management internal expertise? Because this is going to involve not only purchase orders, but it's also heavily focused on subcontracting. And um, do you have it? Well, we have a we have a contract administrator that sometimes does subcontract administration. You know, they're looking for you know people that would run a kind of system like this where it's very large. They would have like an NCMA, National Contract Management Association accreditation, or they're an individual that was a contracting officer prior with the federal government. Then. Yeah, those kinds of people would know the kind of system you want. But if you were just to do it, you would probably fail. In fact, we got into a situation where that's exactly what happened. And, and an audit firm, uh, a professional service firm or a public kind of firm, doesn't really want to do something if they know there's a high probability on a specialized review that you would fail. Because you'd be paying a lot of money to do it. If it's really something you feel is necessary and you're you're starting to get pretty large, you know, 20 million to 50 million, you probably should hire a consultant first to make sure that the policies and procedures 
are set up properly. And once the policies and procedures, let's just say, are in place, and let's say they're in place October 1st, 2020, I mean, 2023, then, you know, six months later, nine months or a year, you have new transactions, new transactions coming under the new procedures, because that's what they're going to test. They don't want to test things that are under the old procedures. Um, and then there are issues where some of the smaller entities, you know, they haven't worked with a professional service firm and they don't understand the expectations. And so a lot of big firms, when they see someone requesting, hey, how large are you? Well, you know, a couple of million and, and who does your accounting? I do it myself. Well, you know, there's just so many issues there that it's you're not ready, perhaps, to deal with it. So that's why um, if you're a small firm, I would encourage you just to stay away. I know you'd love to have the points, but it's it's a very demanding certification. OK, let's go to the next one. I probably beat that to death. OK, so the truth and negotiations audit. And if you can put down the other two bullets, um, DCA is, is committed um, to do more post-award audits. And the reason you know it's defective pricing issues is basically it's a fixed price contract. They do have this clause on cost type, but it's really you have a fixed price and you've provided lots of detail and they require you to sign something called a certificate of cost or pricing data. Okay, let's go to the next slide. And that should be a major warning for you. So what it, the concern to DCA on a fixed price contract or the government is you had knowledge of decreasing cost that was not disclosed to the government. And it's considered an improper windfall to the contractor. And it applies to a $2 million pricing action, which means either a mod or original contract. So let's go through an example. Even though my example, as I realized when I put the slides together, is under $2 million, but I think it still kind of explains to you, what is this defective pricing? Because I did sign a certificate of cost of pricing data. What does that really mean? Well, let's use a simple example. A contractor proposes a million-dollar fixed price effort, okay? And the subcontractor will, do, will work with them. Well, XYZ subcontractor goes out of business before they sign the contract or what they call the date um, on the agreement of price. But the contractor doesn't revise their proposal or notify affirmatively, and it gets into a lot of legal issues, um, notify um, the government when they're signing the contract that really they can't do it. So let's just pretend in this situation, a contract performs a sub work and the subs work is in a task order uh, work breakdown structure where you can actually see um, that the contractor did the subs work. Let's say the sub work was a plumber and you were helping on a base contract or military base and all they did is plumbing. And so you, they didn't do it. You did it. You set up a task order and here it is, $2 million, not $3 million. And then you performed the rest. So you did the entire thing for 900000 instead of a million and you did not inform the government they would say that that million, that $100,000, instead of it being 300 to do the plumbing work, it took you 200, you didn't notify them, they would ask for $100,000 back. So uh, that would be a significant and serious issue. So I'm simplifying it. There's a lot more that goes into it, but that's basically the concept behind it. If you have 
a certificate of cost or pricing date, something like it. it's a very highly worded thing meant for FAR Part 15 and you, or four or something. And you see this and you're signing it. Talk to people before you sign it. Make sure everything is disclosed. If something significant, even it could be like your indirect rates came down and you didn't notify. So just be aware of that. It's like a red flag. Okay, let's go on. Okay, well, before we go on, let's get to polling question number three. And the question is, since there is no regulation that requires timekeeping, what is the basis of time tracking becoming a mandatory requirement? Is it A, for allocability, B, industry practice, C, all of the above, or D, none of the above? So once again, take a moment to submit your answers. All right. And uh, the people that answered 11 of 19, 58%, all of the above. Yes, allocability and industry practice is one of the main reasons that DCA will cite. So let's go on to the next slide. So in the remaining about 10 minutes before we bring on Darren, um, I just want to tell you some of the other new things. There is a contract submission, contractor submission portal for incurred cost audits. There are updates to their cost guidebook, information for uh, contractors, and some of the other items. So let's go to the next slide. Yeah, just put out all the bullets. Um, it's basically uh, the contractor uh, submission portal for incur cost submissions. Your ICE submission, hopefully you're using that if it applies, is basically a SharePoint thing for the ICE submission. DCA would love for it to automatically check for adequacy, but that's probably an AI thing and they're not there. And I just say on the side, ever since I worked for DCA and I worked for DCA too many years ago that I'm not even gonna tell you, they've always been committed to technology. So if there was a way that they could do it, they would have AI do it. But it wouldn't be surprised in a couple of years that maybe AI could check the math or do some other things um, that weren't there before. Um, so um, there we go. Uh, we have a few questions. All right. You want to read one or two of them? Um, yeah, yeah, I can get those. I think the first one, Paul, is does or has GRF done any of the IPA audits for DCAA? Oh, okay, that's a good question. No, we don't. We To do that, we would have to also technically become a government contractor. We don't want to become a government contractor. So unfortunately, we don't do that. And in fact, you don't get the choice of selecting. Uh, DCA would select it for you. Any other questions? Yeah, the second one is, do you have any guidance on calculating ADB? like what costs or contracts are included or excluded from the ADB calculation? It's basically determined whether there are a cost type contract. So you can have cost plus fixed fee, award fee, incentive fee. I think even fixed price redetermination is kind of a weird thing uh, that the ODC and the GNA on the ODCs. And, and it could be if you have any grants that are cost reimbursable, you could also have a contract that's cost reimbursable with no fee. All of those would qualify. Then you must subtract out assist audits of cost type or cost reimbursable subcontractors. Any others? No, I think that should be it for now. So okay. perfect. Thank you so much, Paul. Okay. All right, let's go to the next slide.
one back. Oh, is that the next one? Okay, sorry, my apologies. So it's basically a SharePoint kind of thing. They basically want it so that you submit it and in, and and um, it's logged into official system. So if you go to the next one, is a flow chart, hopefully. And so if you remember the old WAF system was replaced by the PIEE, Procurement Integrated Enterprise Environment. So it'll actually uh, add another role. And, uh, and so go to the next um, slide. And um, so you'll log in and so forth. You'll be putting in your cage code. There'll be a, 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 a verification process. Then you should be able to upload your submission. And once submitted, it'll go to DCA SharePoint. And then basically, you'll be notified that it's there as well as the Cognizant DCA office. So it's kind of cool. Let's go to the next uh, slide as my piece is running down here for time. And I'd like to talk about, um, there is a part of their contract audit manual. It used to be chapter seven. And chapter seven would say, okay, how does DCA interpret depreciation or other leases and other things that sometimes are bonuses and what do they expect? And they, they years ago pulled that out of their defense contract audit manual and just called it a guidebook. And so they're working on more updates. If you go to the next slide, um, you will see the list below of some of the things that they address right now. <clears throat> and it's it's important because if you start to get into disagreements and you want to do research in the FAR, we don't agree with them like bonus is a big deal. They Unless you have a very good plan and you support the basis of that thing as well, um, DC will probably question that. And it could be a lot, a lot of money. So, but anyway, you hear is how you'll hear by reading this, how do they think about it? And you've got to understand that. And they're gonna be adding some new things and updating this. Okay, let's go to the next one. Information for contractors. This is a very good tool. It used to be like a paperback thing that was handed out to people. Go to the next slide. It's on their website. And some of the things they cover is the pre-award surveys of an accounting system and what that involves, price proposals, although they, and when I'm talking about proposal based on a manufacturing model, I'm talking about indirect rates. And even though it's, you know, manufacturing or engineering pool, you know, engineering is similar to service, right? So, and they think they even have a material handling, a little one. So if you never put together a projected indirect rate, go to that thing. You can download it from dca.mil under guidance, I believe, information for contractors. And it will give you an example, a model to see how DCA would like to see it. Well, they're going to update it and come in, bring it probably up to the 21st century. But still, a lot of things in here are very, very valuable. Um, the interim and final public vouchers, just if you've never prepared one and wanted to know how to prepare one, um, you know, they show you what it should look like on the cover, 1034, and the back up 1035. Um, what if you have to have a progress payment for certain types of fixed price contracts? And if you have a progress payment one, there's an, if you're in a loss position, you got to do the loss ratio factor. I've never done it, but it's in the book and it would show you how to do it. And of course, it also discusses um, incurred cost proposals and what they expect. Let's go to the next slide. 
Um, contractor information survey. Okay, this is not an audit. It's just a gathering information for smaller entities where they don't really audit you. Say so like, gee, I got a contract. How come DCA isn't knocking on my door? Well, they do get copies, I believe, of your contract. And someone may go out and and want you to um, complete the survey. You, if you get it, you're not going to be very happy. It's probably 12 or 15 pages and it's lots of stuff. However, even though it's a pain and a lot to fill out, it will begin to give you insight into DCA's concerns about a government contractor. Um, I do have a copy. If you want a copy, I can send it to you that has been sent to us. But if you're super large, you don't need it. But if you want to look at it, you know, um, we'd be happy to post it with um, the PowerPoint and other things that will go up on a website. Um, and it's the information for survey. But it is asked a lot of questions. It is a pain to fill out, but it does give you insight into how DCA thinks. And I think Yev has something special for you. <laughs> yep. Our final polling question, and that is, DCAA uses outside auditors to perform proposal reviews. These outside auditors are called IPAs. Very simple. Is that true or is that false? So take a moment to submit your answers. Well, you know, this, as I look at the question, it's kind of tricky. It wasn't meant to be that way because you could answer true and say, you know, IPAs are the people you know, that, that are doing outside auditors. And then you would say true, but it really was meant to be false, meaning that they only do incur cost audits and they don't do proposal audits. But you could have been focused on, well, what are they called? They're called IPAs. So apologize for that, but really the correct answer is false. Let's go to the final slide before we bring on Mr. Darren, who's the man for security. Um, and that is business systems, NDAAs. That's a National Defense Appropriation Act. And sometimes DCA wants to get something in the DFAR, that's the Defense FAR Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement. And they're still trying to get something, uh, requirements for the review of a contract business system, which still, I guess, as of this date, haven't been approved and changed from significant deficiency to material weakness. So that's pretty much what that involves. And I think these are probably the most uh, important things from the, the latest cur current initiatives. You can look around and they will be presenting from year to year. Now I'm gonna turn it back over to Yev. Perfect, thanks, Paul. Well, I will give a, quite frankly, a pretty quick handoff back to Darren. And as I mentioned before, at the beginning of our webinar, Darren will be discussing some solutions for government contractors, specifically as it relates to their cybersecurity requirements. So with that, Darren, the floor is yours. And yeah, thanks. Thanks, Paul and Yev. Um, Paul, perfect time. And I've never seen someone stop like right on time. That's pretty good. Um, and this is one of the technologies we use for, for some of our clients. Um, this aspect is really for third-party risk management. So we have on the right-hand side is what's called open source threat intelligence. It's very comparison to, I kind of see movies with hackers. You see that black screen, they're typing away, they're breaking into things. That's more Hollywood. 
Um, this is what's called, like I said, open source threat intelligence. This is an equivalent to someone driving by your house saying, okay, you have a dog, you have, you have floodlights that pop on when there's motion outside, you have leave your windows open at night. Um, we're not breaking into your systems. That's something that can be done. This is more of that reconnaissance phase. We're seeing all these different things. We have a digital footprint, which is all the assets that are publicly facing. So if they're behind your, um, your firewall, they're not accessible outside the office, uh, uh, for example, not on a VPN, we would be able to see those uh, patch management. We can see are using legacy systems, are you using uh, like Windows 7 equivalent servers, um, application security. Um, do you have the controls built for your applications when people log into a potentially custom system you built? Are there um, prompts for logins, things of that nature? Um, credential management, you can find out are your vendors, are they signing up, are their employees signing up for kind of random um, websites? I've seen Stitch Fix before, Scentfly, which is a perfume version of Stitch Fix um, out there. Um, you can see, are, can these be used in, in a password um, spraying attack? Um, Hacktivist shares, obviously, for the government is very, is, can be can be useful to find out, is there leaked information? Do you have government secrets or government um, CUI? Um, are people sharing that and saying, hey, I found this at this company and this information's out there now? Um, and the other ones, network security and attack surface really lets you know what open ports or how, what are entry ways into your systems. Um, and then fraudulent domains is a general one. Um, you can see if your vendors or people are popping up fake domains from your vendor and potentially sending you an invoice saying, hey, you you have, a, you have an unpoint invoice, Let, let's pay that. And like, well, no, that's that's a, that's not that's not our actual vendor. We don't want to pay that person. Um, but we can go to the next one, Nathan. Um, and this is a, is a tool that's built upon that scan. So we've looked at all those items in that scan, it was 20 items. And from there, we can estimate and based upon their publicly facing assets, policies, everything that we can see from these this organization or these organizations, you can see how compliant are they with any framework. For example, I pulled up 800-171, which is what CMC is, CMMC is actually based off of. And from here we can see um, this green ring, or sorry, um, this blue ring shows the completeness of the framework and how much of the framework we're able to extract from the external facing assets. So from there we can say, okay, they're they from a public, public perspective, they're compliant with CMMC. They may not need to be, but they have the controls in place publicly. They could not have the controls internally. That would be a different type of assessment, finding out, okay, is the internal network, is that secure? So obviously if you're sharing your data or the government's data that you're using as a subcontract, you want to make sure that you're not just giving away information to anybody. Like You obviously have a responsibility protecting that data. If they get breached, it obviously comes back to you saying you gave that data away. Um, we can go to the next one, Nathan. Um, from here, <clears throat> as I mentioned, you click. We can click through these items. We can say, for example, here we're looking at uh, cryptography. So we looked from their privacy policy on their website. This organization, the technology they're using. So this is using AI to kind of comb through their policies. Obviously, policies can be extremely long and, and tenuous to, to kind of read through. We're actually going there and saying, okay, does this even match up? So there's a 55% confidence that that is true based upon their, their stuff that that actually matches what um, CMMC is requiring. So we can look at that. It makes it a lot easier than going and manually kind of reading through that policy and say, okay, where does this match up? Let me go to the next uh, control and see if that matches up. So it definitely helps with that. 
Um, the next one is the ransomware susceptibility. So this looks at those 20 categories and says, okay, based upon this, this organization has a higher risk of ransomware. Um, just because they, they could be at the lowest risk, they could be all the way to the left in green, they could still be susceptible to ransomware. It really takes that one unfortunate user who clicks something, picks up the phone um, at MGM and kind of just says, yeah, you can, we'll reset your password and they unfortunately take over MGM and Caesars. Um, so we can go to the next one. And this one is a, is a fun one for, from the financial perspective. So this is what's called fair analysis. So everybody wants to know, okay, if we have a breach, what what's it going to cost us when it comes down to it? Um, yes, it's horrible that you get breached or have ransomware or things of that nature. You can say, okay, well, based upon this calculation, you can say, we have an exposure. We have all of this PII or sensitive data or CUI. What is the risk? What's it going to cost us from an insurance perspective? So from this example, we can say it's going to cost roughly $26,000 a year for every incident. So maybe you have cyber insurance that'll cover that. Maybe you don't. That's something that you can look into. But it comes down to how easy is it for a malicious actor to kind of do the exploit this vulnerability? Is this a known, widely known old vulnerability? Um, how easy is it for them to find this vulnerability? Maybe a, a vulnerability scanner wouldn't find this. Um, do you have uh, a CISO? Do you have employee training, data loss prevention? So different factors or controls that are based on there that would lower or mitigate that. Obviously, if you have more records, more controls or less controls, it would obviously affect these numbers. But this is an example that people really like to understand the dollars behind it. You can go to the next one. So this next one is a GRC, a GRC software we used. Um, the example I showed up here was um, CMMC level one. So obviously, there's the DoD has changed it to three levels instead of five in the past. So from here, we can see. Here's the controls. We can say this organization is about just about 62% completed. They've, they've done what they need to do. Obviously, level one, it's a self-assessment. You don't need to get audited as of right now. That may be something they do in the future. Obviously, level two, half of level twos and level three, obviously, you have to be audited. So we can go to the next one. Um, from here, so you can track everything in this software. So if you are currently a level one organization, that you do the self-assessment yearly. You can go in here and you can actually mark and, and assign everything out. You can say, I'm assigning Darren to kind of do this check every month, make it make, make Darren a task that says check every month and make sure that everybody's an authorized user in our system. Make sure that we uh, Darren didn't forget to um, remove someone's access when they left the organization. We can kind of create reoccurring tasks to kind of go back and look at that every quarter, like I mentioned. You can put a policy down there. You can say, link it to our information security policy that says Darren or the CISO is going to check this every quarter, maybe every month, every month, depending on what your organization. You can put a budget behind it so you can really understand the dollars behind it of how much time and how much money are we spending to do this task. Is it something that we can automate? Is it something that we'd have a third party do for us? So we can go to the next one, Nathan. And this is, like I said, we can attach documents in here. So everything can be in a living document in here. So you can have control activities, different risks associated with that. Is there a risk of, um, we forgot to lock out Darren's account when he left the organization, it's been there for six months. We have to go back and probably audit and see what, did anything happen with that account? Um, 
like I said, vulnerability scanning document in there, I, just an example, you can put multiple documents in there and kind of link it and say, this is the policy we're following, or this is the vendor we're using to kind of use their technology to scan or, or do whatever the task is. You go to the next one. Um, like I said, documents, tasks, uh, there's a, a vendor risk manager. So you can actually send out questionnaires to your vendors and say, okay, are, do you have cyber awareness training? Do you have antivirus? What are you doing for all these different controls that we have as an organization? Are you following those controls when we share our data or share our access to our systems? These are different control activities. Every month, Darren runs a vulnerability scan or every quarter we do this activity. Um, we can track all of our risks to the organization um, from the cyber IT side. There's a risk of these different vulnerabilities. They're out, they're coming through. Have we checked our systems to make sure we're not vulnerable? Or are we doing the patching, the end of life patching for Microsoft? I know Linux has their, has their own end of life situation. Microsoft is about every, every three to four years, something like that. And it goes to extended, um, extended protection. We'll go to the next one. Uh, I think this is the last slide, but this is basically saying this is an audit module. So you can use that same technology to store all your tasks, all your um, all your open issues. And you can say, well, we're, we're moving up. We're starting at um, CMMC level one, and now we move to level two. Now we have to have an audit. All this information is already in this system. So you can say we have open items in here, in progress, completed items. So we check the physical protection. The auditor gets access to this screen. They can say, I need... I need to, I'm going to import my, all my requests. I need all this information. Can you kind of just drop it in here? And it's already there. You don't have to worry about finding it in your SharePoint or wherever each individual system kind of pulling all this data in from different locations. It's already living in here. You've kind of made this your ecosystem for tracking items. Um, kind of makes it easy. Auditor gets access to this and kind of can generate the report right from here. I think that's... That's it. I guess I'm passing it back to you, Yev. Excellent. Thanks, Darren. Yeah, I really like how visual all of this is. I would argue, at least for somebody like myself, it just makes it so much more digestible and more importantly, I think, actionable. So I think that was great. Well, with that, we'd like to thank everybody for attending today's discussion and webinar. Thank you to both Darren and Paul, of course. And as always, we encourage you all to follow us on social media at GRFCPAs and to also visit our website for any upcoming events and alerts. Thanks as always, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the GRF On The Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.